As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 28. Um, and uh, we continue to read through prophecy of Isaiah this morning. And uh, just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible with you for any reason, we do print the text of the Scripture passage in the bulletin each week. Without further ado, let's hear the reading, give our attention to the reading of God's holy inerrant and inspired word. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, in the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with Wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to do his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. 
Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us give our attention to the one who is wonderful in counsel, who is excellent in wisdom. Let's ask for his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Give us eyes to see your majesty, your glory, your beauty amidst judgment, amidst unpleasant things. Give us eyes to see your goodness, your grace, your majesty. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. History is his story. Many have used that phrase to remind us that God is the Lord of history, that even though there are secondary causes, even though we make real choices with real consequences, even though we bear real responsibility for those choices, there is one ultimate cause of history, the Lord of history. That's the heading that Alec Moitier uses for Isaiah 28 to 39, the fourth major section of Isaiah. And he calls the first two-thirds of it, chapter 28 to 35, the Egyptian temptation. Scenes like this, Assyria, the big bully, is threatening Israel once again. Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and King Hezekiah, they are tempted to trust in Egypt, Israel's former slave master, to be her new salvation. They're tempted to trust Egypt. Now, you don't see Egypt's name yet in chapter 28, but Isaiah 30, just a few chapters later, gives us the proper background. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt." Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Israel made a covenant with Egypt, which Isaiah calls in this chapter a covenant with death. Israel is trusting in Egypt and it will be her doom. Now, we could easily preach this section as it is, a series of woes. Woes are pronounced on these sins. If you're doing those sins, woe to you. But do God's people have eyes to see good news amidst the woes? If you're turning from these woeful behaviors and sins, is there good news for you? I believe there is. And that's how I'm going to try to preach this section. Not because I'm afraid of hellfire and brimstone. It's in the Bible. Judgment is real. God's wrath is real. 
But what did we title this series on Isaiah? Comfort after judgment. The end goal is comfort for God's people. And frankly, I think God's people are tired right now. Weary. Think we're a group of bruised reeds, faintly burning wicks, as Isaiah says elsewhere. Life has not been exactly what we wanted it to be for a long time. And if we look closely, we can see the good news that's wrapped in woe. See, in each of these sections, Isaiah tucks a little gospel nugget inside a wrapper of judgment or woe. So let's look at them together. What do we see? First, we see true wisdom and beauty in a sea of arrogance. True wisdom and beauty in a sea of arrogance. Verses 1 through 13. The arrogance, self-assurance, and self-confidence, which will not listen to God's wisdom, which clings to fading glory. It's a result of drunkenness. Look at verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Ephraim is the northern kingdom, not the southern one where Isaiah lived. This prophecy occurs before 722 BC when the northern kingdom fell and was exiled. In the northern kingdom, or sometimes called just plain Israel, or Samaria, or Ephraim, it has drunken leaders, drunk, out of touch with reality, drunk, still clinging to their fading glory. Verse 2, behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The mighty one here is probably Assyria, the razor God used to slice up northern Israel, but Isaiah doesn't name them here because the principle of history is more important than the particulars of history. The particular events show us this principle. When one nation is proud and arrogant like drunken Ephraim, then God will use another mighty nation, be they righteous or not, to strike them down. <clears throat> God will judge all nations one day. In the meantime, they rise and fall according to His purposes. And our duty is to humble ourselves before God humbles us as individuals, as nations. It's always better when we humble ourselves, always less painful. He repeats some of these principles in verses 3 and 4. Ephraim is drunk, they're proud, they're arrogant, clinging to former glory, fading glory. It's about to be struck down or eaten up. Verse 4. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it hits his hand. Now, if you don't love figs, fig newtons, like those, <clears throat> if you don't like figs, picture a food you do love, a fresh Fuji apple, a palisade peach, pepperoni pizza, whatever. Think of how you attack those foods when you're hungry. Samaria, Israel is about to be like that, gone, gobbled up. Now I'm going to skip verses 5 and 6 for now, but verse 7, the rest, they're interesting. Verse 7, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger 
with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. More of the same. Is it addressed to the same people? Actually, verse 14 and the rest of this section is addressed to the leaders of Jerusalem. The other kingdom, the southern kingdom where Isaiah lived, the kingdom that was supposedly more faithful than their their apostate relatives to the north. And aren't they the model of righteousness? Hardly. Prophets and priests are drunk, and some think Isaiah was an eyewitness to their drunken buffoonery. He was regularly in the king's court. He spoke truth to power, as they say. But the powerful overestimated their power, their glory, their knowledge. They drank to excess. They didn't just take the edge off. They altered their mental state. Moitier says what they swallow is in reality swallowing them as is ever the secret of the history of bodily indulgence. It is also spiritually disastrous. As it says in part of verse 7, they, the priests, the prophets, stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. Their spiritual vision is clouded. They think they know it all. They think they are mighty. They think they will never fall. And so they say, verses 9 and 10, To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, babies in other words, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. This teaching you have for us, Isaiah, Isn't it a little too simple, line upon line, precept upon precept? Mere repetition, rote memory. Don't you realize we are smarter than this? They treat God's plain, simple teaching like it's gibberish, like it's baby talk and babbling. So as a result, verse 11, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to this people. Because they dismissed God's teaching as foolish, outdated, not relevant to today. Therefore, he allows foreigners to conquer them. Those who speak strangely by a strange tongue. God has promised them rest. They would receive it. But verse 12 says they would not hear it. They would not obey it. Therefore, verse 13, the word of the Lord Once the foreigners come and conquer them, the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Now God's word is going to sound like what they said earlier, gibberish. It'll be gibberish to the arrogant who won't hear it. It'll be unintelligible. 1 Corinthians 14 quotes one of these verses. We don't have time to explain how Paul applies it there, but I'll share the conclusion that Charles Hodge and Derek Kidner both come to. Unknown tongues are not God's greeting to a believing congregation, but his rebuke to an unbelieving one. Both the black sheep in northern Israel and the good people in southern Israel were making the same mistakes. They were indulging in foreign intoxicating substances. They were blinding themselves with arrogance, with self-confidence. Do you know anyone who does that today? 
I assume you probably have an answer for that question somewhere in your mind. It's a certain political faction, a certain theological camp, whoever it is. But the real question is, are you seeking true beauty, true wisdom, true glory? You see smack in the middle of this judgment upon arrogance. You read this, verses 5 and 6. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people and a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate amidst the drunkenness, arrogance arrogance around you. Are you treasuring Christ in His glory, His wisdom, His right judgment, His sense of justice? And you know, how do you make sure that, that such wisdom doesn't just lead you to arrogance, the same arrogance you want to avoid? Well, do you find yourself seeking out more and more stories of people who get it wrong? Are you feeding the beast of your own anger? which may have started as righteous anger? Or do you find yourself meditating upon the law of the Lord more and more, day and night? Has it become your delight? You know, how do you spot counterfeit currency? From what I understand, they spend less time studying the fakes and more time looking at the genuine article in greater and greater detail. It's instructive for us as well. If we really want to grow in discernment and wisdom, then we should go straight to the source, gazing at the beauty of God's glory more and more, looking more and more deeply at the beauty of Christ and the beauty of His Word. You see, my friends, there will always always be errors out there, errors born out of arrogance, errors born out of self-indulgence or self-confidence. There will always be more stuff out there to make you mad. Don't feed the anger. Feed your longing for beauty, for permanent glory, for lasting wisdom. And beware of dismissing God's word as too simple for my problems, for the problems of today. Your problems might be complex. The world's problems might be complex. But perhaps we've underestimated the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Perhaps we need to relearn the basics of his word so that it might unlock deeper wells of knowledge. For those who humble themselves, who tremble at God's word, there is still true wisdom and beauty in a sea of arrogance. We also see, secondly, this morning, true security in a sea of delusions. True security in a sea of delusions. Verses 14 through 22. The northern kingdom is days away from a fall. That would happen in 722 BC. The southern kingdom would survive another 140 years. And it was because they were righteous and good, right? Actually, they had most of the same problems. They too were drunk and self-indulgent. They were arrogant, proud, drunk on their pride. So they couldn't see true wisdom, couldn't see God's wisdom. They They didn't want to see reality. They didn't want to hear God's word. Trust me alone, God was saying over and over again. Turn to me. Don't turn and trust in other nations to deliver you. They didn't listen, didn't want to listen, so they sought out this alliance with Egypt. Surely Egypt will save us, even if they once enslaved us. 
Even if they worship other gods, put their trust in false gods that are no gods. Were they seeking security in a delusion for the sake of security? Verses 14 and 15. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made, excuse me, we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. One commentator calls the scoffers here. He calls them practical atheists. Those who think the world has to be run by human common sense, what would God have to do with that? As they scoffed at God's invitation to trust Him, they seek out this other refuge, this other Savior. And no, I don't think they actually said to Isaiah, we have made a covenant with death. After they mocked Isaiah, Isaiah now mocks them. They surely thought Egypt would never forsake them. No enemy can defeat mighty Egypt. But you can almost hear God's mouthpiece say with biting sarcasm, who's being simplistic now? Do you really think your friends can stand against the overwhelming whip that is Assyria, the overwhelming scourge? Aren't you lying to yourself just to make yourself feel better? We all know this temptation. When the truth is a hard truth, sometimes it's easier to convince ourselves of a happy lie. Ignorance might be bliss but it's still ignorance. And when the bubble of our ignorance bursts, it's not bliss anymore. Isaiah seems to say, seek out lies if you want, but you'll be sorry. God's perfect standard of justice will not change, verses 16 and 17, and he will sweep away this refuge of lies. Verse 18, that covenant with death, it'll be canceled and publicly so when the scourge comes through and the thing you trusted in will be exposed as the lie it really is. And then in verse 20, he uses this great illustration of the in, empty comfort of their lives. Verse 20, For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. You ever heard the phrase, you've made your bed, now lie in it, or now you have to lie in it. This is something like that, only it goes further. It's, it's now lie in it, but your feet are going to hang over the edge like an NBA player in a toddler bed. And the sheets, the coverings, they'll forever be too small, like when your spouse tosses and turns and takes the covers with him or her. If you want to have some fun, look around and see who's elbowing their spouse right now. Might get hate mail for that one. It's worth it. That, beds and covers that are too short, that is what your salvation will be like, he says. It won't save. It will fall short. In verse 21, instead of God bursting through the enemy like he did at Mount Perizim, Mount bursting through, 2 Samuel 5, 17 explains all that. Instead of that, he will burst through his own people in judgment. This, indeed, it is a strange work a strange or alien deed. Judgment, discipline. They're both strange 
mysterious experiences for God's people. But sometimes this is what God has to do to get us to stop trusting in lies, to help us see reality, to help us see our portion of the problems we're facing. I am not saying we are always 100% the cause of our own problems. But there is rarely a time when we are 0% of the problem. Can I get an amen on that one? you'll, You'll let your friend do that, right? Even if circumstances are unfair and out of our control, as they might have been for the righteous remnant in Isaiah's day, even then our response to those circumstances can often be better. We are often more hopeless than we should be. We are often more impatient than we should be. And when we are tired, emotionally or physically or spiritually tired, we are more prone to doubt, discouragement, and party pooperism. That last one, of course, is a technical term. When our false security disappoints, we can get sad and angry. We want security so much, we'll seek it out in strange places, 2 a.m. on the home shopping network if we have to, or maybe elsewhere. We will take refuge in a lie if it will just whisper soothing words for a moment. And sometimes that ends in the business end of God's strange deed, his alien work, his discipline or judgment. But as Martin Luther said, while judgment is Christ's strange work, salvation is his proper work. Salvation is his proper work. In other words, amidst the sea of delusion, Christ offers true security, lasting hope, Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Whoever believes in this rock, it says, will not be in haste. Haste is anxiety. It's confusion. God does not want that. He does not want us to be deluded. He does not want us to be disappointed when our lies are exposed. He wants us to seek true and lasting hope, a rock, a foundation that can't be shaken, a tested stone. Other passages, of course, speak of God's foundation, his cornerstone. And we know that this rock is Christ, our unshakable hope, the stone that was rejected, even crucified for our sins, which has now become the cornerstone, the solid foundation, the crown jewel of our hope, the hope that Assyria's army cannot extinguish, the hope that your greatest earthly fear cannot defeat. 66 years and eight days ago, a missionary died At the hands of the people he was seeking to evangelize, he did not succeed in converting them, not in his lifetime. But one of his missionary partner's sons is now friends, fellow believer in Christ with, the man who murdered those missionaries, which included his father. I'm talking, many of you know about the amazing story of Steve Saint, whose father was Nate Saint, one of the missionaries or martyrs, whose teammate was Jim Elliott, 
who once wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot lose to gain that. I messed up the quote, didn't I? I had a good rhythm going there. He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see these delusions and lies that are everywhere that promise security. They're a dime a dozen. But if you want true security, the kind you cannot lose, it can only be found in Christ. And once it is found, it cannot be lost. Isaiah shows us true security in a sea of delusions. And we also see thirdly and finally this morning, true purpose in a sea of meaninglessness. True purpose in a sea of meaninglessness. Verses 23 to 29. Got to move fast. I'm running out of time. Meaningless. Meaninglessness. It's the default setting of a world without Christ. All we are is dust in the wind. I got to get mine while I still can. I need to seek out whatever pleasure I can while I can. Because once it's over, it's over. In contrast, Isaiah says there is a meaning. There is a purpose to every action, even the painful ones. Verses 23 and 24. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? I'm no farmer, so if I can get this, you can too. Do farmers plow and sow, plant seeds, continually? Do they plow and break up hard ground over and over? Is that the only thing they do? Is the pain, which is how plowing feels, you know, to the ground, is it continual? Is pain the point, the end goal? No. The point is to reap, it's to harvest, it's to have food to eat, which is good and pleasing. Psalm 126 says, sometimes life, it is sowing, it is planting in tears, but the final goal for God's people is reaping, harvesting with shouts of joy. He goes on, verse 25, when he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat, in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? And then verse 27, verse 28 are somewhat similar. There are Two points in all this. One is the hard stuff is a means, not an end. One author says it is purposeful, aiming at sowing the carefully planned crop. When God plows us and breaks us down, it's so that he can build us back up. Planting the seeds of character, which does not disappoint. Romans 5 says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, does not disappoint us, because it's produced by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who guarantees our full inheritance. Life is not simply a series of hardships. Sorrow may last for the night. But joy comes with the morning. The second point, God knows exactly what his crops need. Not only is there a good end that comes after all the plowing, but also, to quote someone else, a farmer changes his manner of working according to the materials he is working with and the stage he is at. God is not a one-trick pony. 
He is diverse. He is infinite in wisdom. He knows exactly what you need right now. Maybe, maybe you need a kick in the pants. Admonish the idle, the lazy, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Maybe you don't. Paul says in the same verse, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Different seeds need different techniques. Different seasons need different solutions. And a wise friend and counselor knows this so that they listen long and hard before they spout off advice, if they give advice at all. And you know, even if we stink at giving advice, even if your friends all stink at giving advice, the point is that God knows exactly what you need. Like a skilled farmer, like a brilliant surgeon, sometimes he deals harshly with his people and sometimes he acts with great tenderness towards them. The same person says, while most of the processes here describe pain, all contribute to the final good goal. In this case, that is food or fruit. The fruit of good character, lasting joy that he wants us to have, to enjoy. Last year when we were studying Ruth together, I said something like this at one point. Do you believe that God is sovereign and good? And don't miss that last part. You see, Presbyterians, we're quick to embrace. Yes, God is sovereign. We're studying it and other things in adult Sunday school right now, thanks to two gifted teachers. But don't forget that the sovereignty, the ruling and directing of affairs, it's headed toward a good end, a happy ending. Israel's life in Isaiah's day, both the godly and the ungodly, it was not all sunshine and roses. But that's where they were eventually headed. If they had eyes to see it, ears to hear it. Verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The pain had a purpose. Don't forget that. History is his story and he is a good God. In all the things we might want out of life, wisdom, security, purpose, meaning, all the good things you might seek from other saviors, all of those things can still be found in Christ. Hast thou not seen how all thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? Let's pray. Oh God, you are good. <clears throat> Give us ears to hear your good truth in the midst of many other things grappling for our attention. And give us the capacity to repent and turn from our sin, turn from our impatience, our ungodly character, and turn to Christ who is ready to take away our sins and nail them to the cross, who is ready to make us more like himself slowly and surely until we one day spend eternity with him. Father, be with us. Give us all that we need and give us the confidence that that is exactly what you are doing, exactly what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.